Amen. Don't even have to tell you to sit down. You just wanted to sit down. I see how it works. It's fine. I won't be offended. Take your Bibles. Go to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, as you know, if you've been keeping track, we just finished up um, a series on uh, 1 Peter. Um, We were in 1 Peter for about six months. Next week, we will begin our Advent series, our Christmas series, so we're looking forward to that. Hope you got your Christmas shopping done. I still have at least 24 more days till I start, so there we go. Matthew chapter 11. As we walked through um, 1 Peter together, there were a number of times in the middle of that series where trying to encourage believers, as Peter did, trying to encourage you here at Uniontown of what might be coming up in our future and, and, and how to endure, how to be different than everybody else in our suffering, in our obedience during difficult times. There have been a number of times that what's popped up at us as we've um, been kind of walking through that is a theme. It's the theme of doubt. It's a theme of, of doubt. And, and it's something that was noticeable not just to myself, but to a number of us who were leading worship those mornings, and, and as we did our regroup on Monday morning, we would make the comment to each other, like, did you see that? Did you hear that? When doubt came up, there was this, this palpable change in the room. And so we made it our purpose to, to spend just a little bit of time in between our series of First Peter and Advent to just talk about this just today. And, and I want to be very, very clear. Just maybe this alleviates some stress for you. Doubt is a common experience for the children of God. It happens to so many people who know and love Jesus Christ, and one of the most difficult things for them is they feel like it's just them. It's not just you. I mean, I wish, I do, I wish I could stand up in front of you and go, okay, here's the five things you can do to alleviate doubt. But I'm going to be honest, I'm selfish. And if I had those five fixed, surefire ways to help you alleviate doubt, I wouldn't tell you for free. I would sell a book, make a bazillion dollars, and buy a truck, go on vacations, do all kinds of fun things. But they don't exist. Now, that's part of what, what makes this a, a little, bit, little bit difficult. What, what I want to do this morning is, is I want to address a couple of core reasons doubt exists in us. And then, then I want to look at Scripture and kind of lay through um, story and through the, the experience of Jesus and others Um, just a picture for you of how other people in Scripture suffered with doubt. Because in some morbid way, we take great encouragement in that. And and I want you to leave here um, encouraged. Now, I say that, as I'm about to say this, a couple, one of the main reasons uh, that doubt exists in people about their faith, about their salvation, simply is because they're not saved. Wow, that's very encouraging, Frank. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad I could help. Um, so, nothing like the pastor getting texts while he's preaching, by the way. It's always good. <laughs> amen. It said amen. That's what I'm saying it said anyway. Um, so, one of the real reasons is you're, you're not saved to begin with. And, I, and I, I say that not to create questions or more doubt in you, but because it's an issue that really needs to be addressed. Particularly in our culture, Uniontown. In our culture. There are so many of Uniontowners... <laughs> who have grown up in church. They've gone to church. They have their baptismal certificate. They, they know exactly where they sit in church every week. Now that you have seating things happening, it's really messed with some of you. I understand that. And, and the difficulty is that you, you, when you think about your salvation, you think about 
That moment you went under the water, you think about the baptismal certificate that you hold, you, you think about where you sit in church, you think about that prayer you prayed, the hand you raised, the aisle you walked down, and that's what you keep going back to, and you keep going back to that. And I want to tell you right now, because I love you, showing God your baptismal certificate will not alleviate his wrath. There is no act of obedience that any one of us can do that's going to gain us acceptance into God's presence for all of eternity with great joy, not even your church attendance records. So one of the very real dangers for us as a local church, Uniontown Bible Church, is many of you, because of the way you grew up, you are anchoring your salvation in something that isn't salvation, it's just your life, your culture. And speaking of, many of us anchor our acceptance in God's eyes through our good moral behavior. Because again, in Carroll County, a lot of good people. There's a lot of good people in Union Bridge and in Westminster and in Tawnytown. A couple in New Windsor. Not so many, but a couple. Um, <laughs> I just want to break the tension. Okay, we're good. So, so the reality is there's a, there's a lot of good people who are, are, are living a high moral life as defined by church history. And the difficulty then becomes your salvation is associated with your morals and even your voting record. And I love you, but good Moral people don't stand before God justified because they are good moral people. You have to be perfect to stand before God justified. And sorry, even if you're from Westminster, you ain't perfect. Now you have to stand before God with a perfection that has been given to you. Jesus Christ died and suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Salvation is believing that what God said about you is true, that you're a sinner. And there's nothing you can do to to create a bridge between you and God because of your sin. Salvation is understanding that and believing that. Salvation is believing that God is who he said he was and did what he said he would do. This is love. Not that you loved God, but God loved you and sent his son. It's the belief that Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God, the one true righteous one, died where you should have died, where you should have been required to give your life. He willingly gave his. It's believing that Jesus Christ rose three days later, evidence and proof that his payment for your sin was enough. It's, uh, uh, so uh, Leviticus is everybody's favorite book of the Bible, I know that. Um, Leviticus has some really cool pictures for us to help us understand. The basic message of Leviticus is this, guys. Your sin costs a lot. One of the pictures of that, that costliness of sin is, I think it's Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 4, maybe it's chapter 2 and 4, but there's an, an image that happens as, um, every year, the daddy for each family would come with an offering, a sacrifice for his family. And he would bring a spotless lamb with him. And then when it came his turn, he would stand before the priest and he would put his hand on the head of that lamb. And as his hand was on the head of the lamb, the priest would come and slit the throat of the lamb and the blood would pour out. And the picture was the, the transference of the the guilt of the family from the daddy to that lamb. Their guilt was transferred to the lamb and that lamb was slaughtered for their sins. 
That's what salvation is. It's taking your hand and laying it on the head of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sins of the world. So, do you understand what salvation is? Is, is this your salvation? Are you laying your head on, or hand on the head of the Lamb? Or are you trying to do other, other things? Salvation is placing your hand on his head. It's knowing apart from Jesus Christ, you are hopeless. So are you depending on him and only him? So one of the reasons for doubt is in reality, there's no salvation there. Another reason for doubt is, is uh, memory related. Again, because of where we are in our culture, in our, in our area location, so many of you came to faith at such a young age. Many of you. How many of you became a Christian before you were 10? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's more than half. So here's the problem, is especially you who have came to faith at a younger age, but you hear the testimonies of salvation of these, these other people. I mean, it was always growing up, and it was always like the, 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 the drug addict, the um, murderer, the, uh, the, the, the um, mafia henchman, has this beautiful collision with Jesus, and overnight he goes from like the worst dredge of society to this, this Bible-thumping believer in Jesus Christ. There was this radical life change in his life. But, but when you become a believer at age five, there's not so much of a huge radical life change. I mean, maybe, maybe you were redeemed out of not eating your broccoli. So as you look back, it's like, well, I just didn't see that huge change that I hear so much about. So... Um, when I started in ministry, I worked with singles, and a particular group of singles were our college students. And mark it down, mark it down. Every Christmas break, those college kids would come home, and, and between 10 and 15 of them would be like, hey, Frank, can, we have a, can I get together? Yeah, sure. And between 10 and 15 of them over Christmas break or summer break would sit in my office and say, you know, I just don't know if I'm really saved. Okay. And almost all of them was because they got saved at such a young age. So let me, let me, let me do this. You understand what I'm trying to get at, but let me, let me do this. <laughs> This, this happened during the online message, and I shared this illustration, and afterwards I'm like, wow, that was a crazy illustration, but I'm going to try it again and see if it works. How many of you, oh, I'm opening up a can of worms. How many of you remember putting pants on this morning? You remember putting them on? Uh-huh. Some of you are like, <laughs> Now, we're all thankful you put them on whether or not you remember, okay? Let's just be clear. But here's the crazy reality. It doesn't matter if you remember putting them on. Praise God, you have them on. So, so let, me, let me do this. Right now, right now, what are you counting on to bring acceptance in God's eyes? Right now. If your answer is anything but you are laying your hand on the head of Jesus Christ, you have a problem. But if your answer is, man, it's Jesus and only Jesus. I just don't remember when that happened. You don't need to remember right now. If your hand is on the head of the Lamb of God, and you have been adopted as one of his own. Hmm. Those, are, those are probably the two most common reasons for doubt. Now, what I want to do is just kind of take a little twist here and, and, and show you in Scripture how Jesus responded to people who doubt. I want to, I want to show you this verse. It's very interesting. So Jude... Jude is a half-brother of Jesus Christ. Jude had rejected Jesus' work and ministry as Jesus was on earth. We, we know that. We see that as there's, there's conflict between um, Jesus and his family. In Jude chapter 22, as Jude is writing his very short book, 
He says this is the way we should handle people who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. And I think as you walk through Scripture and you see people who doubt, you will see Jesus treating people in merciful ways. My prayer is that brings you great encouragement. I mean, one of the, the, the stories that comes instantly to mind for me is Mark chapter 9. You have this daddy show up with his son, and his son is, is demon-possessed, and he, is, um, um, he would get thrown into seizures. He would, he would become mute and wouldn't be able to speak, and then the demon would try to throw him into the water and into the fire to destroy him. And daddy comes, and he knows he needs help, and he says, listen, Jesus, if you can, could you help my boy? And Jesus' response is, if I can, um, anything is possible for the one who believes. And then you hear (laughs) the clearest example of doubt in Scripture. Immediately upon hearing Jesus say, anything is possible to the one who believes, the daddy gets excited and then reality kicks in. He says immediately, I do believe! Help my unbelief! I I do! I, 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 I want to! Help me. You ever feel like that with God? I do believe. I do believe you've got my best in mind. I do believe you're working in this situation. Okay, all right. Obviously, you know. No, I don't. How did Jesus respond? He responded the way Jude explained it. He had mercy on the man. He heals his son. He commands the demon to come out of him, and he restores the boy's health completely. The man asked for help with his doubt, and Jesus didn't ridicule him. He came to his aid. What about, what about our famous friend, Doubting Thomas? John chapter 20. Basically, here's, here's the, in a nutshell, the story of Thomas and his doubt comes down to the simple fact. Thomas missed a meeting. You should never miss a meeting. Just reality. I don't know if he had something better to do. He wasn't feeling well. But for some reason, Thomas didn't show up. So I don't know if you're on any boards or at work. If you don't show up for a meeting, really kind of the rule of thumb for our elder team is whoever's not here gets the worst tasks. Don't miss meetings. Thomas missed a meeting. What happens? The resurrected Jesus shows up to all the other disciples. And as you read John chapter 20, a very overlooked statement is made. As Jesus appeared to the rest of the apostles, the rest of the disciples, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, sometime later, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is gone, and and Thomas comes to the other disciples, and they're like, as you would imagine, out of their mind. We saw Jesus! It was amazing! It was incredible! John chapter 20, verse 25 says this, so the other disciples were telling him, we, we've seen him! And Thomas' response is, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, if I don't get to put my finger inside the mark of the nails, and I don't get to to put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And we're like, oh, Thomas, where's your faith? What do you mean, where's his faith? Everybody else got to see the nails. 
the nail marks. Everybody else got to see the, the hole in Jesus' side. Everybody else got to interact with the resurrected Jesus. But Thomas is supposed to elevate his faith level to a place where he didn't get to see Jesus. He's just supposed to be like, oh, of course, I'm so excited. No, I want to see it myself. Pretty rational. <laughs> and you know when... You know when you're waiting for something to happen, it just seems to take forever? I think for Thomas, the next eight days were excruciating. Because it took eight days until Jesus finally appeared to Thomas and says this, you put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas asked for evidence to help fight his doubt, and Jesus was merciful kind and gave it to him. And where I want to land this morning, and I've had you turn that over, is Matthew chapter 11. This is the account of doubt that has stood out to me the most in my life. John the Baptist, very famous man. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. John the Baptist, this is the guy um, who, who initially encounters Jesus while he's still in the womb. Right? So, so John the Baptist is in his mama's belly and Elizabeth's belly, and then uh, Jesus is in Mary's belly, and, and, and Mary comes into the room where Elizabeth is. They're both pregnant, and it says, um, and Elizabeth exp- exclaims, but the baby just leaped when, when Jesus came in the room. And there's this interaction where already, even before birth, John the Baptist was filled with this spirit of, this is the one, and there's this excitement and enthusiasm. He leaps for, for joy. You, you read through Matthew chapter 3, you find out his lifestyle was a little different than most. He wore camel skin, ate locusts, ate honey. Uh, he was the type of guy who actually made a vegan look normal, which is hard to pull off. If you're a vegan, I love you. You're just weird, but I love you. Um, <laughs> my email address is markandries at utown.org. <laughs> His ministry was the first... Um, fire and brimstone like preaching. I mean, he's, he is preparing the way for the Lord. He's calling people to repentance. He's, he's, he's going against the Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, he is lighting them up. Well, he calls them all kinds of names. Uh, blah, 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 blah. The, the, the one who comes, he says this to them, the one who follows me. I baptize with water. Yeah, the one who follows me is coming nuclear. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. You're all toast. I mean, he's, he is just letting it rip, fire, brimstone, he is, he's preaching like that. And then um, um, Jesus comes to John in the, in the, the river and, and wants to be baptized. And John the Baptist responds, whoa, 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 no, 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 I'm not even worthy to touch your sandals. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this is the time that you're supposed to baptize me. And after some convincing, John the Baptist finally gets Jesus, and he, he puts him in the water. And as he comes out of the water, the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove from the sky. The voice of God the Father is heard. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist is there for all of that. All of that. Being the fire and brimstone type guy that he is, He's watching the events of culture and politics around him. And he sees King Herod do something that is completely unacceptable. See, Herod went to uh, visit his brother Philip. His brother Philip had a very attractive wife whose name was Herodias. Very attractive name, too. <laughs> Herod fell head over heels in love with Herodias. Must have something to do with the name. And then 
convinces Philip to put her away, to divorce her, to set her aside so that Herod then comes in and he marries Herodias. And John the Baptist is watching all this and he's like, that is completely inappropriate. That, that, that's immoral, it's adulterous. These things should not happen. And he confronts Herod face to face about these things. And you know how much kings like being told they're wrong. And John the Baptist is arrested. And he's placed in a prison, in this desert fortress, set aside from everybody. We're told that he was in that prison for a year before ultimately he was put to death. But during that year, we get this, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2, it says this. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Why, why would he ask that question? This is John the Baptist. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, he's been preaching this message. It says the Messiah is going to come. And he is going to bring judgment with both hands. He's going to spare the remnant. He's going to cleanse Israel. He's going to rain down unquenchable fire on the wicked. But Jesus isn't doing those things. Instead, he's healing and he's preaching. And John had been waiting for the Messiah to come in and to clean house. He had been waiting for somebody to come in and finally enact that judgment, especially in the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and yet the Sadducees and the Pharisees are still in leadership. They're still tormenting John's people. And he longed to see the Messiah just to set them straight. And here is Jesus. But the Sadducees and Pharisees are still in power. Nothing's changing, and the Romans aren't being kicked out. And Jesus is spending all of his time with irreligious people. It's not, it's not quite what he imagined. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That's John's preaching. This is the one, and now he sits in prison. This is not what I expected. Are you actually the one? Or are we looking for another one? And some of you, and I've talked about this before, but some of you have been uh, sold the line of an easy life once you come to Jesus. You know how it works, right? Your truck runs better, your food tastes better, your wife and you get along wonderful. But what happens when your truck breaks down and all you have is kale and your wife won't talk to you? See, I've got expectations of what this is supposed to look like. Come to Jesus and everything will be perfect is a lie. We still live in a broken world and what John the Baptist is dealing with is just that. Are you the one, or do we wait for another? Because this ain't lining up with what I thought was going to happen. Prison was not supposed to be in the plan. Notice, first of all, what Jesus says to John the Baptist. 
and what he doesn't say. Look at Jesus' answer, starting at verse 4. Jesus replied to them. This is the disciples of John the Baptist have come to ask this question of Jesus. Jesus replied to them, You go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What, how Jesus responds is, is isn't. <laughs> it's important we don't understand what he doesn't say, too. John, you should know better. Because we're family. You were there when the dove and the voice, you should know better. John, I can't believe you would allow Satan to cause you to sin like this by asking me that question. Jesus never says any of that, does he? Now he deals mercifully with the one who doubts. He says, guys, you, you go back. You go back to John the Baptist. And what, this is what I want you to tell him. I want you to tell him what you've seen. I want you to tell him what you've seen. I want you to tell him what you have heard. When you see Jesus in the ministry of Jesus, I, I want you to t- explain all that to him. So what you see is the blind begin to see. You, you, you see the lepers are being cleansed. You see the lame are walking. You see the deaf hearing. The dead are being raised. The poor are receiving good news. I want you to go to John the Baptist, and I want you to go back to the book of Isaiah and say, here are the prophecies that were laid out about the Messiah that was to come, and here is Jesus fulfilling every single one of them. What I want you to do is go back to John the Baptist, and I want you to tell him that the word of God is being fulfilled in Jesus. And while you're there, tell him to trust me. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me, he says. In in, in difficult seasons of doubt, even when it's not easy, the one who's not offended by me, blessed, happy is the person who trusts in him, even when they don't understand. Trusting in him, then you'll be blessed. That's his, his promise here. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in the church you go to. Don't trust in your preacher. Don't trust in the date that you have written in the beginning of your Bible. Don't trust in a story that mama and daddy have told you about when you came to Jesus Christ. Trust in the one who died for you 2,000 years ago and yet gloriously lives even today. Anchor yourself in the truth. Bathe in the truth. That's how you overcome doubt. You bathe in the truth. You remind yourself of the truth over and over and over again. Let me encourage you with this. Look at, look, look at Jesus talk behind John's back, right? Okay, so when you hear talking behind somebody's back, you have an assumption of how that's going to go. Jesus is going to talk behind John the Baptist. This is going to get good. So the disciples of John the Baptist leave. Jesus is left with the crowd. And here in verse 7, as those men are leaving, it says this. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out just to see this reed swaying in the wind? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in the royal palaces. What, what then did you go out to the wilderness to see? A prophet? <laughs> yeah. I tell you, and more than just a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. See, I am sending you my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Oh, you hear Jesus smack-talking John the Baptist because he doubts now, right? Absolutely not. What you hear from the mouth of the Savior is, have you... Have you met John? I mean, you all went out in the wilderness. What were you going to see? A show? Oh, some of you were like, oh, we wanted to see a prophet. You wanted to see a prophet. I'm going to tell you this. You didn't just go see a prophet. You saw the prophet. 
You saw the promised prophet of Malachi who said that this one would come and prepare the way of the Lord. You went out and you saw him. Whether or not you knew it, that's who John the Baptist is. So don't you dare talk bad about John the Baptist, no matter what doubts he has. There has never been one greater than John the Baptist. (laughs) I love how Jesus finishes this. No one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. (laughs) That's you. (laughs) John was the prophet, yet John had to come and announce the kingdom. You get to be in it. You get to receive the full benefits of it. You are able to experience the salvation that comes from the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can live in that freedom. You can live in the freedom that comes from this, uh, I'll call it joy-filled, even though it's it's a little rugged, this joy-filled proclamation. It was painful, it was hard, it was difficult, but it's the beginning of your freedom, and it's this. It is finished. It's the beginning of your joy. And your joy continues to be made more and more complete as you just fast forward three days from when that was said because it is empty. That's what helps you live in victory. We are quick to doubt. We need to be quicker to lean and bathe in the promises of God, in his truth and in the work of Jesus Christ. You have been made a child of God. You don't deserve it. That's one of those things you just have to get over. (laughs) Maybe no, don't get over it. Be reminded over and over again how much you don't deserve the salvation that is yours. The beauty is your salvation isn't anchored in anything you do. It's anchored in what's been done for you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can have hope. God, I pray that you would be with the one who's here this morning, who's struggling with doubts, who's wrestling with with those very inconvenient thoughts that come at the worst times. Lord, help them to recognize who you are and what you've done for them. Lord, I pray that even this afternoon they would spend their time going back into the word and and reflecting on on who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Lord, I pray that the hope of the resurrection would be be something that encourages and motivates them to to further trust. We know doubts are normal. We thank you that you give us pictures of others who doubt. Lord, I pray that the one here who is doubting would feel the mercy of Jesus Christ working in their hearts. I pray for the one with us this morning who doesn't know Christ. I pray that even now, they would fall on their knees before him and call out to him as Savior. Lord, remind us and remind us often of what you've done for us. May that reminder begin even now. In Jesus' good and precious name I pray, amen.